Hello, my name is President Shrimpo, and you are listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. And in this week's episode, we're going to be covering uh, the second half of the American Civil War. Uh, But actually, with this intro, I want to talk about something very briefly uh, and do things a little bit differently. Um, We're going to jump back in time for just a moment, uh, more than 20 years before the Civil War. Uh, to 1838 in Springfield, Illinois, uh, where a young lawyer by the name of Abraham Lincoln uh, is delivering a speech uh, to, to uh, on, on the issue of politics. Uh, and in this speech, um, Lincoln says some things, uh, which I'm going to quote to some extent, paraphrase to some extent here. Uh, but, but essentially, w- what Lincoln says is, shall we expect some transatlantic giant to step across the ocean and crush us at a blow. Never. All of the armies of Europe and Asia combined could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track across the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. Where then can we expect the approach of danger? If destruction be our lot. We ourselves must be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live forever or die by suicide. So, um, as, as a quick preface um, for this episode, I am recovering uh, from a pretty nasty cold that I, that I, I seemed to have caught while I was uh, traveling abroad last month. So, uh, I apologize if my voice is a little bit more nasal uh, than it normally is. That's just the way it goes. Uh, but without any further ado, we now will continue this, this second half of, of A House Divided um, here on In the West Wing. Uh, so where we left off, um, so up to this point, so we, we've we've passed the midterms of 1862. We're now entering 1863, uh, and up to this point, uh, the Union war effort has been fairly mixed. Um, most of the progress that has been made so far has been in the Western theater out along the Mississippi, uh, while you know progress in uh, sort of the east coast of of the south, uh, particularly uh, up around Virginia, has not been particularly fruitful up to this point. Uh, Additionally, the economy is not doing very well. It's it's still kind of struggling under the strain of of wartime conditions, especially considering uh, about half the country is broken away. And so that, that of course, is going to be uh, putting some economic strain uh, on the country. Uh, And... In the midterms of 1862, uh, we see that uh, Republicans didn't do great uh, in in the House of Representatives in particular. Uh, Republicans would lose 25 seats and along with it, their outright majority. Uh, however, an important thing to say is that no party controlled an outright majority. And so Republicans were then able to form a coalition sort of uh, government in, in the House of Representatives 
uh, with the Unionist Party. Uh, the Unionist Party is was sort of a collection of former Whigs and pro-war uh, former Democrats that were maybe alienated by their party. Uh, and so, so essentially, that's sort of the biggest loss for Republicans, but it's one that is sort of a, a warning sign of where things might be headed uh, if, if the uh, progression of the war does not speed up and, and improve in the near future. And so what the midterms of 1862 show is that Republicans up to this point are still the most popular party. You know, the Democratic Party is still very much associated with the rebellion going on in the South. But voters are also unhappy with the progress that is being made. Uh, and so if Lincoln wants to succeed in sort of extending his ma uh, mandate uh, through the election of 1864, uh, Lincoln needs to sort of start getting some wins. The union needs to start winning. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the position that we're starting at in, in, in this week's episode. So first we need to take a look uh, at uh, sort of the biggest thing going on at this point, which is sort of the uh, restructuring of military command uh, out in the East and in, in, in sort of in Virginia. Uh, so after uh, General George B. McClellan was removed from his command in Virginia, uh, leadership in the Eastern Theater was sort of uncertain. Uh, initially, uh, a certain general, Ambrose Burnside, would take over. Uh, but after a major Union defeat at Fredericksburg uh, in December of 1862, uh, Burnside would be replaced by General Joseph Hooker. Uh, quick side note, uh, Burnside is the namesake of Sideburns, uh, and General Hooker is the namesake of, well, Hooker's. Um, uh, just just a fun little uh, fact there. Uh, but uh, so at this point, uh, the Union Army had double the men of the Confederate Army in Northern Virginia. But consistently throughout this period, uh, the Union would seriously lose to, to General Lee uh, in, in Northern Virginia. Uh, and changing the leadership in, in the Union command was not alleviating this at all. Uh, and months into 1863, there was really no major progress. Uh, and and so it seemed that the Union war effort in the beginning of 1863 was just as stunted as it was before the midterms. So to make up for the losses that were that were being you know racked up over time uh, and to sort of reinforce Union troops, Congress would pass, uh, the Enrollment Act of 1863 passed that March. Uh, and what the Enrollment Act was, was essentially the first genuine conscription law enacted by the federal government. Up to this point, uh, the the federal government's army was supplied through volunteers and state militias and, you know, sort of irregular uh, troop um, sort of raising. So, so by having a sort of conscription, you know, a draft, uh, that really sort of changes the math on on the number of men that can be recruited into the army. Uh, and so what this Enrollment Act uh, required was that all men ages 20 to 45 uh, uh, who were either citizens or were immigrants who had filed for the citizenship had to be entered into the draft. Uh, and each state 
and congressional district within each state had their own specific draft quotas. Um, this was sort of meant to sort of offset deficiencies uh, from low volunteer enlistment. Um, but if you were drafted, this was not sort of a sentence that you absolutely had to serve uh, because the federal government sort of uh, gave people outs where if they really did not want to serve in the army, they didn't have to. Uh, and there were two ways they could do this, uh, either through a system of called substitution in which you would finance uh, and buy equipment for somebody else to go and fight in your stead and, and sort of uh, be your replacement. Um, or you could commute uh, your the draft uh, by play, paying a $300 fine, uh, which doesn't sound like a ton. It's, it's the equivalent of about $5,000 today. And I think the idea there was that if somebody genuinely did not want to serve, the, the government would essentially not force somebody to serve uh, because that would mean they would be a bad soldier if they really were not committed uh, to fighting. And so they figured, well, shoot, if somebody really does not want to serve, they may as well pay us. Uh, and that way they can just get around it. Uh, but... The ability to commute the draft was an option that was really limited to those who were either upper middle class or wealthy, uh, which you have to consider was a fairly limited sliver of the population uh, in the 1860s. Uh, and what this really served to do was just enrage the poor working class uh, who were forced to actually serve uh, in, in the army when they were drafted, while their wealthy counterparts did not have to. Uh, and we see this sort of build up a lot of um, class-based resentment uh, that really boils over uh, as we enter the summer of 1863 when, when the draft is actually being enforced. Uh, but we'll get to that in a bit. So, um, shifting perspectives a little bit, uh, we're going to move over to uh, focusing on the Confederate Army for just a moment. Um, so... In the beginning of 1863, uh, we see uh, that the Confederate military is not doing great in terms of supplies uh, and, you know, uh, the number of men they had up to this point. Uh, but they had proven to be a, a fairly competent fighting force, at the very least, even under sort of uh, disadvantageous conditions. Uh, and so General Robert E. Lee uh, commanding the Army of Northern Virginia, which was particularly low on supplies considering it's sort of on the frontier and sort of very close uh, to um, Union lines uh, and sort of, you know, both the capital of the Confederacy and the Union. Um, General Lee hopes to sort of use the momentum of a series of, of Confederate, Confederate victories um, in the previous months and sort of use that momentum to sort of snowball and take the war up north. Uh, if you recall um, with uh, the passage, or not the passage, I should say, with the re release of the um, Emancipation Proclamation, that came on the heels of General Lee attempting to march north uh, and being turned around in Maryland. And so what Lee is hoping in, in sort of the uh, late spring, early summer of, of 1863 is to sort of recapture that energy and uh, basically, he he genuinely believed that if he could deliver a decisive victory on Union soil, um, and and 
sort of capture supplies uh, for his army in the raid, uh, it would really decimate the morale of Northerners who who maybe up to this point were okay with the war or who were somewhat supportive, but who had maybe not had the, the war come to them. Uh, and so the plan was essentially to cut north into Pennsylvania uh, and capture sort of a major um, rail hub uh, and to threaten the major northern cities of Washington, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. And the idea was that this would sort of embolden the sort of anti-war copperhead movement, as, as, as they were called. Uh, and, and General Lee uh, would write, um, describing this plan, in effect, saying, quote, If we can baffle them in their various designs this year, and our people are true to our cause, our success will be certain. And next year, there will be a great change in public opinion at the North. The Republicans will be destroyed, and I think the Friends of Peace will become so strong as that the next administration will go in on that basis. Essentially, what Lee is saying is that he, he, he truly believes if he can deliver a humiliating defeat in, on northern soil, that it would make things so bad in the Union that it would cause Lincoln to lose re-election and that a pro-peace Democrat would be, be elected as the next president. His plan was maybe not the best thought out. Uh, and actually, the Confederate government didn't support the idea uh, they had tried repeatedly to try to get Lee to redeploy out to the Western Theater to counter Union victories along the Mississippi, but but Lee, who who was devoted to his his state of Virginia, his home state, uh, refused, uh, and this was probably not a good idea. He he probably could have done quite well out west uh, and actually turned around uh, the war in in certain theaters. Uh, rather than just sitting around in, in northern Virginia and then doing a pointless raid on northern soil. Uh, but either way, Lee was committed, uh, and he would begin marching north uh, with his army of northern Virginia uh, in early June of 1863 uh, with the Union troops uh, under the command of General Hooker slowly following behind. Now, Hooker had sort of been cowed by Lee and, and really did not want to directly confront him. Uh, and actually what Hooker wanted to do was to turn around and march towards the undefended Confederate capital of Richmond. But President Lincoln really disagreed with Hooker and believed it was more important to counter the largest Confederate army heading up into northern lines. Uh, and Hooker basically threatened to resign over the issue, which Lincoln called his bluff on. Uh, and so Hooker would be replaced uh, by the Union general George G. Meade at the end of June, uh, right as as the Army of Northern Virginia was finally crossing the border from Maryland into Pennsylvania. Uh, and so Union forces would finally catch up with Lee just outside of the town of Gettysburg, Gettysburg Pennsylvania, uh, which is sort of in southern Pennsylvania, uh, right along the border of Maryland. Uh, and from July 1st, to July 3rd, a battle would ensue that was the bloodiest of the entire civil wars with 46,000 to 51,000 casualties combined from both sides over the course of a three-day battle. Uh, and while losses would be roughly even 
in terms of just raw numbers from both armies, uh, it would be slightly heavier for the Confederates, uh, and it would force Lee to begin a slow and painful retreat southwards back into northern Virginia. And really, it ended any future plans uh, made by any Confederates uh, into bringing the war onto northern soil. So while Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, would be costly, uh, it would be a major turning point for the Union's morale. Uh, with a, a, a New York diarist by the name of George Templeton Strong uh, reacting uh, to the battle uh, by writing, quote, The results of this victory are priceless. The charm of Robert E. Lee's invincibility is broken. The Army of the Potomac has at last found a general that can handle it and has stood nobly up to its terrible work in spite of its long, disheartening list of hard-fought failures. Copperheads are palsied, and dumb for the moment at least. Government is strengthened fourfold at home and abroad. So while Lee was able to escape and, and you know, people were unhappy about this, uh, it still made a, a big impact in the course of the war, and which is why I think Gettysburg is one of those few battles that even if you don't really know anything about the Civil War, is a name that you've heard of at the very least. Uh, and, and I think it's sort of indicative of the sort of slow but steady shift of, of momentum in the war from sort of Confederate momentum towards now a, a sort of, it's this quiet momentum for the Union, but it, but it is a momentum nonetheless. We're now going to jump ahead uh, to a, a, a event that happens only a few days after the battles of Gettysburg, uh, starting on July 11th, um, the enrollment act, the draft of that, uh, was the first draft was being drawn, uh, in Manhattan, in New York city. Uh, and on the first day of, of the draft being, uh, drawn uh, on July 1st, there was no incident. Uh, but on July 13th, a full 10 days after the end of the battle of Gettysburg, the second draft was going to be drawn. People were very angry. Uh, and at 10 a.m., a crowd of about 500 people marched to where the draft was being drawn, uh, and that would begin a bloody four-day riot that was the culmination of white working-class rage in the city of New York. Uh, now, for some context on, on these draft riots, uh, New York City's economy had been deeply tied to the southern cotton industry uh, since the 19... Since the 1820s, excuse me, uh, roughly half of the city's exports were southern cotton. And at the start of the war, uh, many citizens of New York City were southern sympathizers. Also, another big thing to note is that a vast portion of the city's working class population were Irish and German Catholic immigrants. Uh, by 1860, nearly a quarter of the entire city's population was born in a German state. Uh, and many were recent immigrants who spoke some to very little English, if, if any at all. Um, and so, you know, you've got this sort of massive immigrant working class population uh, that's growing in the city. Uh, and to sort of redirect working class resentments towards their bad pay and bad working conditions and bad living conditions, uh, sensationalist newspapers in the city uh, would write up these really ugly caricatures 
of African Americans in the city and, and would try to stoke uh, racial fears, fears of interracial marriage, of African Americans stealing jobs from hardworking white people in the city. Uh, and it really sort of, it built up this sort of very ugly animosity uh, from within the sort of white working class population of the city. Another big factor uh, in, during this period is the Tammany Hall sort of democratic machine, uh, which sort of organized city politics, at least on the democratic side. Uh, and this was a political machine that really heavily relied on Catholic immigrant votes. And so Tammany Hall would quickly work to enroll new immigrants into becoming U.S. citizens to gain more voters, essentially. Uh, but there was a catch. Recent immigrants who were enrolled to gain their citizenship were not informed that this meant that they would have to enroll in the draft. And so there were all of these people who suddenly came to the U.S. Maybe they were just planning on doing work. They maybe weren't even planning on staying, but who came, were offered these good deals by Tammany Hall recruiters. They get enrolled to become citizens, and then boom, they find out, oh, they might have to go down south and fight and die in a war that they had no personal stake in. That's that's how many of them felt. Uh, and so, so this sort of sets the stage for a lot of resentment uh, and quite a bit of it directed towards the wrong people. Uh, and so, cutting back to the to the mob that that accumulates uh, around the draft that morning, July thirteenth, eighteen sixty three, uh, this mob was pr primarily comprised of Irish immigrants to the city, uh, and many of them were very resentful that they would have to be drafted, while the city's wealthy could pay the fee to commute their service. The rioters were also very angry uh, that the city's black population was exempt from the draft. Um, the reason that the African-American population of the Union was exempt from the draft is because they were not fully considered legal citizens at this point in time. Uh, and the Union military command had been really hesitant to even enlist black soldiers because of deep-seated racism and, and a belief that black soldiers would be inferior in some way in terms of their fighting capabilities. Uh, and, and additionally, uh, black men were only allowed to serve in the Union Army uh, in combat roles uh, beginning in January of that very year. So, so the idea of incorporating African Americans into the Army, that was a very new concept and something that was not really considered when they were drafting this, this Enrollment Act. So, um, to discuss the events of the New York City draft riot, uh, I'm going to need to include a content warning here. Uh, what followed was one of the most extreme examples of anti-black mob violence in American history. For listener discretion, I will partially describe racially motivated murder, including violence against children. If you do not feel comfortable listening to this at this time, please feel free to skip ahead to the timestamp at the following time code, 2605. So, um, the mob attacking the, the, the draft being drawn uh, in Upper Manhattan quickly escalated in terms of the violence that they were doing. 
they would begin throwing bricks through windows, setting fire to nearby buildings, attacking dispatched firemen, cutting telegraph wires, and attacking innocent black civilians on the street. Uh, with New York State's militias being redirected to serve in Gettysburg, only the Metropolitan Police uh, in the city were able to respond initially. Uh, and they were quickly overwhelmed by the rioters, uh, which quickly grew in size as, as more and more people saw the violence and, and decided to participate, including, I have to say, some of the volunteer firemen and police in the area. The violent mob would tear through Manhattan uh, and would attack pro-Republican newspapers, sacking businesses that catered to black customers. They set fire to the Colored Orphan Muse Asylum. Uh, the police were only able to um, hold the crowd back long enough for all 223 orphans to escape to safety uh, by b blocking the mob from approaching. Uh, and the mob also murdered numerous black civilians, uh, set fire to black-owned businesses, uh, attacked white women who were believed to be in interracial relation relationships uh, with black uh, citizens in the city. Um, they set fire to churches. Uh, it, it really it was a, a very ugly, dark moment in the city's history. The rioting would only fully stop after four days on July 16th, uh, when state militias and several army units entered the city and confronted the remaining rioters in the street uh, with a, a outright gunfight in the streets, uh, ending the conflict. Um, in total, uh, around 120 people were killed in the riot, uh, with thousands more injured, and millions of dollars in property damage. 11 black people were lynched over the course of the riot, uh, with one of them being a seven-year-old boy. The draft would resume in August with no further incident, uh, but, the per but it permanently shifted the city. Uh, the equivalent of nearly $90 million in property damage uh, accumulated over the course of the riot, uh, and it began a painful exodus of Manhattan's black population out of the city. Uh, by 1865, the black population of Manhattan dropped to below 10,000, which was the lowest it had been since before 1820. And what this really shows is that while, you know, military progress was improving and all of this, and, and you have the victory at Gettysburg, Anti-war sentiment in the country is still so incredibly strong and racist ideology and, and, and sentiments are, are pervasive, even in the North. And what it, this shows is that overcoming the sort of entrenched position of the sort of anti-war Democrats, these copperheads, by 1864 would be very difficult. Uh, and so we're now going to jump a little bit uh, to the political front. Um, so large portions of the Confederacy up to this point uh, were now under Union control. Uh, the entire length of the Mississippi was occupied. New Orleans was occupied. 
Uh, the coast of North Carolina was occupied. The bulk of Tennessee was under the control of the Union. Uh, and Tennessee actually finally had a, a governor again that was in favor of the Union. Now, it was a military governor, and this was a certain Andrew Johnson. Uh, and sort of the sort of westernmost mountainous counties of Virginia had, had long held very pro-Union sentiments. Uh, and so, and had been under Union control. Uh, and so these western counties that had long sort of felt separated from the state capital in Richmond uh, put up a vote and decided to secede from the state of Virginia uh, and would form the new state of West Virginia in June of 1863. Now, on November 19th, 1863, uh, President Lincoln was invited to deliver a, a few remarks at the opening of a, a graveyard, a national graveyard, uh, for those killed at the Battle of Gettysburg uh, four months prior. Uh, and Lincoln would accept this invitation and would come. Uh, having a, a, He was feeling quite weak and sickly. He had a slight headache and a mild fever. Uh, and Lincoln would arrive at Gettysburg um, at the time, he didn't realize this, but he had the onset of a very mild case of smallpox. Uh, and feeling quite tired uh, and unwell, Lincoln had written a fairly short speech, less than two minutes in length. Uh, and he would deliver this speech, honoring the dead uh, and sort of reaffirming the the purpose of the Union war effort. And it would begin with, with a set of opening words that live on even today. Uh, with President Lincoln saying, quote, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This Gettysburg Address, at the time, had sort of a quiet reception. I think people were a bit more focused on how sickly the president looked. Uh, but after it was circulated, uh, after the fact, um, the Gettysburg Address is considered one of the most powerful spe speeches uh, ever delivered uh, because it, it sort of lays out this this vision of a free America and a, a, a purpose to this war beyond keeping the Union together, but, but to, to save the soul of the nation, essentially. And, and I think that sort of shows the, the power of Lincoln in in he's one of those few presidents that we've had where, where we remember what he said that that's something that that I think I think sort of speaks to to his power as a leader but also to how much he understood the, the sort of importance sort of the the spiritual transformation that the country was undergoing at this time so so as, lay, as he laid out this, this vision of, of an America in which all men truly are created equal, we see the beginning of, of the effort to finally, once and for all, destroy slavery as an institution. Uh, and we see this with the introduction of the 13th Amendment in at the, sort of the end of 1863. So, Fearing that the scope uh, of the Emancipation Proclamation was too limited, 
uh, and that it could be easily overturned by a conservative Supreme Court or, or by a, a pro-slavery future president. Uh, abolitionists within the government hoped to draft an amendment that would permanently and definitively end American chattel slavery. And so multiple congressmen and senators uh, would draft various versions of an amendment in the winter of 1863 that was meant to abolish slavery nationally, not just in the rebelling states, but permanently across all states. Uh, and eventually, the various drafts would be compiled by Republican Senator uh, uh, Lyman Trumbull into the succinct amendment stating, quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. This amendment uh, would pass in the Republican-controlled Senate by a commanding margin, uh, 38 to 6, uh, with two Democrats voting in favor on April 8, 1864. Um, however, this amendment would not pass in the divided House of Representatives uh, and would fail to meet the necessary three-fourths margin uh, that June. Um, and with, the pa with failing to pass the 13th Amendment that summer, uh, that would become sort of one of the key political conflicts uh, entering the election cycle of 1864, uh, and President Lincoln would be caught in the crossfire of the factions both opposed and in favor of it. So, after commanding Union victories in southeastern Tennessee in the fall of 1863, two Union commanders would make a name for themselves. Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, in March of 1864, uh, General Grant would be promoted to the level of Lieutenant General uh, and made commander of all Union armies. This was a position that was last held by George Washington. That's how much Abraham Lincoln really had faith in, in, in Grant's ability to lead and command the army. Uh, and Sherman was then placed in command of the entire Western theater and sort of had this plan to, to go and strike south and capture the major city of Atlanta and in turn the vast bulk of the state of Georgia. Grant and, and Sherman favored a philosophy of war that, that some I think would describe as total war. Uh, it's what Sherman described as hard war. Um, essentially, the idea was rather than just targeting uh, you know, military targets, uh, the army would begin uh, attacking industry, infrastructure, and enemy supply lines. The idea was that it would, it would strangle the Confederacy uh, by limiting its ability to transport, uh, you know, basic supplies through its arteries of, of, of infrastructure. And, and General Sherman uh, would write to Grant, outlining their plan for victory, saying, quote, If you can whip Lee and I can march to the Atlantic, I think old Uncle Abe will give us 20 days leave to see the young folks. So now we're going to take a look at the election cycle of 1864. So despite Lincoln's popularity today, uh, his reelection in 1864 was really pretty far from a sure thing. 
uh, Republicans had faced really not inconsiderable losses in 1862, uh, and the war progress so far had been slow and costly. Uh, and with incidents like the draft riots, it showed that there was really deep anti-war sentiments that were still brewing in the country. Uh, and also, Lincoln's base of support was pretty seriously divided uh, because you had both radical Republicans who believed that, that Lincoln was not acting strongly enough to end slavery, while you also had sort of more moderate, sort of unionist former Democrats. Some of them were still Democrats, but who still supported Lincoln's war effort uh, that sort of, you know, were, you know, unhappy with some of the proposals made by the radicals. And then, so Lincoln has sort of had to balance the interests of both groups uh, within his sort of coalition, essentially. Uh, and so hoping to get to sort of bring together the disparate groups within uh, his, his sort of support base uh, and sort of bring together those in favor of bringing the war to a conclusion as a union victory, uh, the Republican Party would merge with the faction of Democrats called War Democrats that really favored bringing the war to its proper conclusion. Uh, and along with the Unionist Party, uh, former know-nothings, uh, sort of a wide range of people that maybe were not Republicans in their own right, uh, and brought them all together into this grand coalition called the National Union Party. It's within then the sort of big tent coalition uh, that we see that the radicals within the Republican Party are, are unhappy with, with Abraham Lincoln's leadership, uh, and they hoped to sort of in some way try to block his renomination. Uh, the sort of most serious attempt at this uh, was by Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase. Uh, Chase was the only figure who was willing to openly try to contest the nomination, uh, but Chase would fail. Uh, but a, pro a month prior to the National Union Convention, uh, a group of breakaway radicals uh, organized the Radical Democracy Party. Um, and at their convention would nominate John C. Fremont as their presidential nominee. Fremont had been the Republican nominee in 1856, and he had served in the Union uh, Army. Not very well, but he had served as a general. Uh, and he believed that, that Lincoln was not doing enough to end slavery. And so it's really essentially what, what Fremont and the Radical Democracy Party was doing was running a spoiler campaign uh, that was being actively encouraged by Democrats that were trying to sort of encourage these rifts within the Republican Party. So, uh, convening in Baltimore, which I want to note, uh, was the largest slave market in the Union uh, on June 7th and 8th, both radicals and Democrats hoped to extract concessions from Lincoln at the Republican National Convention that, that summer. And so, in an effort to sort of balance the ticket, uh, Democrats within the coalition hoped to replace Republican Hannibal Hamlin uh, with a Democratic replacement. Uh, among those who were considered as replacements were General Benjamin Butler, former Senator from New York Daniel Dickinson, and the eventual nominee for the vice presidency, Andrew Johnson, the military governor of Tennessee and the most prominent Southern Democrat to have remained loyal to the Union. So, so essentially the idea was that it, it would balance 
the interests within the national union by having a Republican for the presidential nomination, a Democrat for the vice presidential nomination. And the radicals in the party uh, ensured that adopting the 13th Amendment uh, would be in the party's platform. So, so it was sort of it was sort of a a tightrope balancing act where Lincoln uh, agrees to have a Democrat as his running mate, and then agrees to make sure that slavery is killed and ended once and for all, both under the same party banner. Uh, and so, the National Union Party's platform promised the following things: pursuit of the war until the Confederacy surrendered unconditionally, a constitutional amendment for the abolition of slavery, aid to disabled Union veterans, continued uh, European neutrality in the conflict and enforcement of the Monroe Doctrine, uh, an encouragement of immigration to the country, and the construction of a transcontinental railroad. And essentially, through this entire convention, the main argument that is being laid out by Republicans is that you shouldn't switch horses midstream, that, that, that the people needed to let Abraham Lincoln bring the war to its conclusion. And so that's sort of the pitch that is being made by Republicans at this time. Now, switching over to the other major party in American politics at this point, the Democratic Party was in a very precarious position. Uh, the conduct of the war so far had been moderately unpopular and there was this genuine belief that that abraham lincoln might lose he might be unseated from the presidency but also the democratic party was deeply associated with the southern rebellion and so it was this thing where there, there had to be sort of this tightrope of balancing the interests of the anti-war copperheads along with the interests of Unionist Democrats who were opposed to the rebellion at all. Uh, some at the time thought that Horatio Seymour, who was the popular governor of New York, might run for the presidency. Seymour was sort of a moderate in, in terms of the uh, issue of ending the war. He, he believed that uh, the war needed to be ended with a negotiated peace deal, but he also really was opposed to Southern secession, uh, so it was some idea that he could kind of bring together the different factions of the party. Uh, but ultimately, Seymour would decline to run for the presidency. Uh, this really only left candidates who were on opposite ends of the spectrum. This left Thomas Seymour, who, as far as I'm aware, had no relation to Horatio Seymour. Uh, Thomas Seymour, the, the former governor of Connecticut, who was a copperhead, uh, who was really truly believed the idea that the entire war had been a total failure, uh, and he he promised to essentially let the Confederacy leave the Union. Uh, and on the opposite end was then General George B. McClellan. Uh, McClellan had been the former commanding general uh, who had really squabbled with Lincoln and had sort of a very personal feud with with the current president. Uh, but but above all, McClellan was a war Democrat, and he he really genuinely wanted to bring the war to its conclusion through a, a continuation of it, essentially. The Democratic National Convention of 1864 was hosted in Chicago on August 29th through the 31st, uh, and the party really hoped to bridge the divide between the war and peace Democrats. Uh, and ultimately, 
the popular General McClellan would be nominated for the presidency, but along with him to balance the ticket uh, would be a prominent copperhead, Congressman George Pendleton, as, as, as for the vice presidency. So, so what we have then is a, a Democratic ticket that on the top of the ticket is a pro-war Democrat who's in favor of bringing it to its full total conclusion, and at the bottom of the ticket is a, a, a peace Democrat that wants to end the war no matter what. Uh, and the convention uh, would eventually adopt a pro-peace platform, which McClellan rejected. So you have this weird situation where the party is advocating for one thing, but their own nominee is rejecting what the party is calling for. And so it, it really, it was this very weird political situation to be in. So, breaking away just a moment for ele from electoral politics back to the war, uh, we see General Grant has been in command uh, in Virginia now for some time, uh, but his progress with what is now called the Overland Campaign uh, has been fairly slow and had you know fairly limited progress, really kind of grinding uh, the army against Lee's army with limited success. Uh, and Lincoln's popularity was not seeming like it was improving. And, and so there was some, late into the summer, into the beginning of the fall, there was some genuine concern that, that Lincoln was in a bad spot for re-election. Uh, that was until news reached the North that General William Tecumseh Sherman had finally captured Atlanta on September 2nd. And additionally, uh, Fremont, who was running as a, a, on, under the ticket of the Radical Democracy Party, uh, was appalled by the Democratic Party's platform. Uh, and he, he genuinely believed that if he uh, assisted the Democrats in winning the presidency, it would mean slavery would exist for far, much, for far, far longer. Uh, and so Fremont comes to Lincoln and he, he, he offers a deal. Fremont will drop out of the race and endorse Lincoln if Lincoln would fire his postmaster general, Montgomery Blair. Blair was a, a moderate Republican who constantly was in f speaking out in favor, of trying to reconcile with the Confederacy. Uh, and uh, that's because he had a relationship with quite a few politicians from the South who were serving in the government in the Confederacy. Uh, and so Blair was really hated by radicals within the party. And so... Uh, at the end of September, um, Lincoln would agree, uh, Fremont would drop out of the race, uh, and Blair would be relieved of duty, uh, and this really would bolster Lincoln's chances at re-election. Suddenly there was no, no longer the splinter candidate that was running sort of a spoiler campaign. Along with this, uh, you've got massive mail-in ballot initiatives from soldiers all across the front uh, who were, were very, very much in favor of Lincoln. Uh, and this was the first time we see mail-in ballots uh, being used in a presidential election, which is really noteworthy, I think. Um, and so, come election day, November 8th, 1864, Abraham Lincoln would win every state except Kentucky, New Jersey, and Delaware. And the Republicans would expand their majority in the Senate and capture an outright majority in the House. With this new commanding electoral mandate, uh, Grant and Sherman would act to quickly conclude the war decisively. 
uh, and Lincoln would set forth to end slavery once and for all. Uh, it was during this time that uh, General Te William Tecumseh Sherman uh, would begin his infamous march to the sea, uh, burning through Georgia, uh, leaving Atlanta in ruins, and making a beeline straight for the Atlantic coast to cut the uh, Confederate states down the middle. Uh, Sherman would later recall the beginning of, of his march to sea uh, from the beginning of November to late December uh, in, in his memoir, uh, having written, quote, Behind us lay Atlanta, smoldering and in ruins, the black smoke rising high in air and hanging like a pall over the ruined city. Some band, by accident, struck up the anthem of John Brown's body. The men caught up the strain, and never before or since have I heard the chorus of glory, glory, hallelujah, done with more spirit or in better harmony of time and place. And I think that sort of strikes a, a, a interesting image of, of a Union army that is going out and doing this hard war campaign that is, that is, that is leaving a city in ruins and, and cutting through the countryside of the South. And finally, there is this, this sense that the war is coming to a close and there is this, this jubilation and this, this desire to sing among the men. And I, I, I find that striking. Um, and it was during this time that General Sherman uh, would act to free enslaved people uh, that his armies encountered uh, with a caravan of thousands of freed people trailing along the army, marching through Georgia. And it was during this sort of period that, that ideas of land redistribution would spring up. Uh, and it's, it's from this we then have the birth of the idea of redistributing to every freed slave 40 acres of land and a mule. That's something we will discuss in more detail on the next episode. Jumping back to the political theater for a moment, uh, Lincoln really hoped to pass the 13th Amendment through Congress before the next session began in the following spring. Uh, this was despite the fact that it had failed to pass earlier that past summer with the current sitting Congress. Uh, and why, why, why is this, you might ask? This is because Lincoln believed it was inevitable. Uh, he said as much, saying, quote, There is only a question of time as to when the proposed amendment will go to the states for their action. And as it is to so go, at all events, may we not agree that the sooner, the better? Additionally, there's sort of, I think, a, a, a symbolic element to this. It's, it's symbolic of the transformation that the entire country was undergoing, that e even a Congress that had once been opposed to abolition could change itself and, and still end slavery outright. And so... After a long and arduous period of political jockeying in Congress, the amendment would finally meet the two-thirds threshold necessary and pass on January 31st, 1865. Uh, and in the following months, it would be ratified by, by the states uh, and made official on December 6th, 1865, with the 27th out of 36 states ratifying the amendment. Now, it was during this period uh, that General Grant would doggedly pursue General Lee through Virginia. And while the overland campaign had been really a very slow, arduous slog, his fortunes had improved, uh, and his determination really had worn General Lee's army 
uh, of Northern Virginia very thin. Uh, and Grant would decisively beat Lee at the Battle of Five Forks on April 1st, 1865, cutting Lee off from the rest of the Confederacy, and Richmond would fall shortly thereafter. General Lee would surrender to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, which is by many considered the end of the war. However, fighting did continue in some areas for some time after. Uh, the last land battle of the Civil War uh, would be fought May 13th in Texas, uh, and the last enslaved people, uh, freed by the order of the Emancipation Proclamation, would be freed on June 19th in Texas, uh, which is honored today as Juneteenth. Several days after General Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, President Lincoln would attend a production of the play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater with the First Lady and two guests on the night of April 14th. Uh, Lincoln, as far as I'm aware, was enjoying himself at the play uh, when Confederate sympathizer and well-known stage actor John Wilkes Booth would sneak up behind Lincoln, who was watching the play, uh, from the presidential theater box and shoot the president in the back of the head. Booth would escape, uh, beginning a, a, a two-week-long manhunt that would end in his death, and President Lincoln would die the following morning um, from his injuries. And at that moment, Vice President Andrew Johnson would become the new president of the United States. And American history would be changed forever. As always, I've been your host, President Shrimpo, and thank you for listening to In the West Wing on WKNC 88.1. Special thanks to those who helped give history a voice in this week's episode of In the West Wing, with Caitlin Carroll as Robert E. Lee, Erie Mitchell as George Templeton Strong, Zach Bradley as Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Mayo as Lyman Trumbull, and Elsie Howard as William Tecumseh Sherman. The intro music used on In the West Wing is Star-Spangled Banner by the United States Marine Band, and our outro song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pessoa. <laughs>